0: This year, the month of September marks the 10th anniversary of NDE Radio, and the volunteers who've worked on it would like to thank our listeners. We're proud to have been of service in providing you with these NDE stories, evidence our souls go on after our bodies die. One of our volunteers, our YouTube channel creator, Ken Root, joins us on today's show. But instead of breaking out the champagne, I thought we might talk today about pride itself, and how too much of a good thing can redirect us away from the light of realizing God's all-encompassing love. And first of all, why do NDEers differ in their conclusions about the afterlife? For example, some NDE enthusiasts believe that since God is the essence of love itself, there's no way the Creator would allow anyone's soul to suffer after death. A similar belief of universal salvation holds true for the Unitarian Universalist Church as well, making the UU denomination one of the, that enjoys a regular inflow of membership from other, less all-forgiving denominations and faiths. Universal salvation means that everyone, even a Hitler, goes to heaven. A variety of Christian denominations offer more ritualistic guarantees into heaven, with Catholics relying on confession and priestly absolution of sins, while some more evangelical churches teach it's not what we do or don't do, but simply a proclamation of faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's the only sure path. Meanwhile, others, other faiths hold that it is what we do that determines our fate. Were we thoughtless and indifferent to others, even outright cruel and abusive? Or were we generous, compassionate, and loving to others in this world in the expectation God will welcome us into the next? But while we can't speak for all the religious beliefs out there, we ears should be able to come to some understanding of why the notion of universal salvation prevails among ears when there is apparently so much evil in the world. Some ears reason that since the light is an all-loving creator, Sin itself might just be a figment of our imagination. That when we see cruel, cruelty and greed, betrayal and corruption all around, it's understood as an element of challenge, uh, part of the game we're assigned to play in this matrix reality. On the other hand, those 20% of terrified DND ears who have a distressing experience of isolation or a preview of some other scary consequences waiting for them when they die, are being shown a picture based on reward and punishment. The question is, why are these DNDE messages so different from the loving ones? Well, one reason may be in a misunderstanding of the life review we go through during an NDE. Perhaps life reviews are not the same as judgment after death, but more a guide to show experiencers how they're doing in their lives thus far. Also, the light and love we feel from those we encounter, from family and angels, even Jesus in the light, may also be a teaching moment to let us know what's at stake and what we're given the free will to forfeit, if we so choose. Distressing NDEs may just be for those who need a stronger warning, their scary NDE, a shock therapy gift to wake not only themselves, but the rest of us who hear about it. We all know evil things happen in the world. But what is our relationship to them? Did we author a bad situation or simply contribute to it? And what should we do to help make others, other things better? Well, Global warming is one example of participation in group sin. We know the wind-driven fires that have destroyed parts of Hawaii and Greece and Canada and Australia and the Amazon and so on are the inevitable results of human short-sighted selfishness. But how much of that is me? Closer to home, we all can name selfish mistakes or conscious moves we've made that brought damage to our life and to others' lives. Is our bad behavior then the source of evil in the world? Or is it simply a measure of our shortcomings, which is, after all, the definition of sin? The word sin means to miss the mark, like an arrow falling short of its target. One clue to all this may be found in the Lord's Prayer, taught to the disciples by Jesus when they asked, how should we pray? As translated in the Gospels of Matthew, that's 6, 9-13, through 13, and Luke 11, 1-4, however, there are two different last lines to the prayer. More common in the Western Church is the use of deliver us from evil, as translated in the Greek neuter case, while in the masculine case the phrase becomes deliver us from the evil one. Also in the Aramaic, the language Jesus spoke, the phrase is deliver us from the evil one. This is the version preferred by the Eastern Orthodox tradition as well, and by the british and american revised versions now what's the difference between the two well evil is evil while the evil one happens to be another name for that once beautiful fallen angel lucifer turned so prideful and power hungry that he's called the dragon in revelation 12 7 through 9 which goes now war arose in heaven michael and his angels fighting against the dragon And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. A reference is also made to Lucifer in this Old Testament passage from Isaiah, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the north. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to the realm of the dead to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home? Also in Luke 10:15, Jesus tells his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So, personally, I suspect it's the evil one Jesus' prayer is meant to warn us about. But here's something interesting. In those passages from Revelation and from Isaiah, I just read, Lucifer's description changes from beautiful morning star and son of the dawn in heaven to dragon, to devil, to Satan, to man. Lucifer becomes man. Well, not just any man, but as influencer to tyrants and dictators with earth-shattering impact. To repeat that part from Isaiah, those who see you stare at you, they ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home? How does Lucifer become a man? We know there is a thing called possession. Jesus drove out demons, and the Catholic Church is reportedly practicing exorcisms more and more these days. As we know, there have been many extraordinarily evil despots and dictators down through the centuries. In the last hundred years, we routinely name Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, and Putin just as just in the West alone. Could possession explain how an ordinary human with selfish, heartless tendencies? Suddenly uh, be used to create a hell on earth, such as the concentration camp tortures decreed by Hitler and his Nazis? Well, based on an experience I had several years ago, I would say possession wouldn't work as well as temptation. Just once in my career, thankfully, as a hospital chaplain, a tormented soul I attended during his death tried to take over my body rather than enter the tunnel. Believe me, attempted possession is an invasion you never want to experience. The rage and fear in his soul was icy and nauseating to me. It happened the moment he died, I stumbled out of the hospital room and leaning on the hallway wall with all my strength drove him out with prayers and demands that he look for the light, which I assume he finally did. In any event, he left my body and went on to his fate. So based on the pain and disorientation of that brief experience, I would say demonic possession would render most people unable to function. Temptation rather than outright possession is Satan's preferred way to take control. All he needs is a willing vessel, and the human vessel for evil that's particularly workable in that case would be a narcissist the perfect vessel for evil accomplishing evil on a grand scale. What is a narcissist, you ask? According to Wikipedia, the term narcissism comes from the Roman poet Ovid's story of a handsome young man, Narcissus, who rejects the love of others. The gods punish Narcissus by making him fall in love with his own reflection in a pool of water. When Narcissus discovers that the object of his love cannot love him back, he slowly pines away and dies. Extremely high levels of narcissistic behavior are considered pathological. It manifests manifests itself in the inability to love others, a lack of empathy, emptiness, boredom, and an unremitting need to search for power while making the person unavailable to others. Well, what makes a Hitler? Stalin or Mussolini turn from the normal cravings we feel as humans to a desire for the power to do hugely evil acts of destruction. My guess is narcissism can make one particularly susceptible to possession or to uh, the temptations of, of Satan and the perfect embodiment for ruthless dictatorship. The Bible tells us Jesus' final temptation by Satan after 40 days of fasting and prayer was with what Satan saw as the most tempting, absolute earthly power. Matthew 4, 8 and 9 tells us, The devil took him, that being Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. That word me, is seductive to the narcissist, the meeting place where Satan and a Hitler can have a meeting of the minds. Fortunately for the world, Jesus was no narcissist. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus already understood something about being human that Lord Acton later wrote in 1887, that being Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. But the confluence of Satan and narcissists works better than it did on Jesus. It's the reason Paul wrote in his letter to Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If there's a lesson to be taken from these musings, I think it's this. We create the conditions for going bad in our lives the closer we get to becoming selfish, self-absorbed, and fearful of openness and generosity and kindness to others, in short, by becoming more and more ego-driven and ultimately narcissistic. We do that, and we are opening ourselves to the personification of evil, the evil one, the Lord's Prayer prays we be delivered from. So what are the warning signs of narcissism, and who is susceptible? How could a person go from ordinary sin to authoritarian evil? Well, This week's guest is Ken Root, an NDE experiencer, and by the way, the man who designed and built our ad-free YouTube channel, NDE Radio, with Lee Whitting. Over the years, Ken and I have had many conversations about narcissism. Ken was born to, a, to narcissistic parents and lost vitals on the operating table during surgery for a skull fracture caused by sibling abuse at the age of three. Ken believes it was perhaps the weeks of separation from his family and the loving kindness he received at the hospital that caused him to individuate early in life and seek a different path as a childhood NDEer, ear he returned to his dysfunctional family as the black sheep or family scapegoat born to neglectful and abusive parents yet guided with the help of spirit to break free of his family's ancestral chain of narcissistic abuse so ken welcome back to the show Where should we begin?
1: I guess my first thought is, have we established the connection between evil and narcissism? Your lead in kind of did that. Hmm. Do you think it's pretty well set from the intro? Well, the, 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 the correlation between evil and narcissism. Are people going to get it? Or are we skipping ahead too far to go right into narcissism? <laughs> well, the thing is that uh, when I looked at this,
0: you know, if you go to Wikipedia, for instance, and, and look about look at narcissism, it says, that, or some authorities they quote say that a normal amount of narcissism is okay. Mm-hmm. So it's not to say that uh, you know self esteem to a certain degree is you know or a strong ego is is evil but i think what happens is the the sicker you get with narcissistic uh behavior the more uh vulnerable you become to doing bad things or even becoming possessed by by you know some power that would like to do super bad things like Mm -hmm. dictators you know like a hitler or a mussolini i think that happens very rarely but It happens often enough to change world history. So that's pretty potent.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So we could talk about it, talk about normal narcissism, and then how does it go
1: bad or how does it become extreme? Right. Okay. Well, maybe a good place to start, and you kind of teed this up, is that narcissistic traits everybody has. In other words, every time we get sick, we're we're mildly narcissistic because it's like, what well, it was me, you know, take care of me, you know, mm-hmm. your, your survival instincts kick in to where, you know, you're just basically focused on trying to get over what it is you're going through, you know, right. so difficult times tend to bring out those traits in people. That's completely different than narcissism as a personality disorder. To where it's gone to that extreme, to where it it essentially is irreversible and incurable. Um, I I, uh, punched up in psychology today um, just a quick list for the uh, listeners to just kind of give them a sense of what the DSM 5, the diagnostic and statistical manual that psychologists use to diagnose uh, their patients. And this is, this is the medical criteria for a diagnosis of narcissism. And you have to have all nine of these traits. Most of us will have one or two and more when we're not feeling well. But this is a permanent state in some folks is number one, grandiose sense of self-importance. Number two, preoccupation with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. Number three, belief that he or she is special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with other special or high status people or institutions. Number four, the need for excessive admiration. Number five, sense of entitlement. Number six, interpersonally exploitive behavior. Number seven, which I think is the most important one, which is a lack of empathy. And eight, envy of others or belief that others are envious of him or her. And nine, demonstration of arrogant and haughty behaviors or attitudes. So, you know, this this is what the medical industry looks at as far as the definition of narcissism. But it, it really comes down to the, the lack of empathy, I think, is the most You know, the the least common denominator, if you boil it down to its pure essence, is insensitivity, focus on oneself, lack of empathy. And what's not in the list that I've learned, you know, just from my own experience is it's an external focus on validation. In other words, narcissists in general lack self-love. They can't regulate their own emotions And they self-regulate by manipulating and controlling others to give them the supply and validation they need to live a normal life. Mm -hmm. It's it's a different way of going through life, where you're focused on controlling the world rather than controlling your emotions.
0: In uh, Wikipedia, they talk about Ovid's metamorphoses and the character Narcissus, after whom the disease is named Who, because he can't love other people or accept their love, falls in love with his own reflection. He's cursed by the gods to do this. And then fades away because the reflection can't love him back, which I thought was an interesting way of putting, you know, a failure of self-love. Because, you know, he loved himself more than he loved anyone else. But then it was a an image of himself, a reflection of himself rather than anything that could generate a positive response
1: exactly the reflection can't validate him and provide him the adoration that he needed
0: yeah so it's almost a spiritual component it's like the soul is rejecting the brain in a way i mean if the ego is coming from the brain the soul is somehow responding uh or not responding to what the brain is going through it's a breakdown between spirit and humanity
1: You know, I I think of it in terms of how we deal with difficult situations and difficult emotions. Mm -hmm. I I, I was having a a similar discussion with one of the guests on the show that uh, we were talking about why do some people have NDEs and others just nothing happens or they have distressing NDEs. And what we were speculating is could it be? A basic curiosity, the ability to rather than run away from fear, to face it and go, hmm, this is a new experience I've never had before. Mm. Um, In my NDE, I, I was terrified, like traumatically terrified up to the point of the actual accident occurring. And once everything broke, there was no fear whatsoever. Fear was left behind. There was nothing to drive me away from the scene. I was just in the in this environment, uh, stripped of everything. And it, without fear, there was no reason to cower, to run, to hide. Um, and so what we were speculating is, is it the ability to face difficulties with a sense of wonder and curiosity? versus pulling away rejecting denying hiding um it, it's it there, there there's a fundamental difference in the approach to difficult situations of do, do do you confront it with courage and peace and tranquility or do you run and hide and cling? I think it really comes down to that, and, and to kind of bring it back to you know more more emotional uh, baggage is that oftentimes we tend to repress. Psychologists call it disassociation. You have a traumatic experience or a negative experience. My first NDE was that way. I tried to stuff it where the sun don't shine. I never wanted to admit that it ever happened to me until the second NDE occurred. We do that with unpleasant things. We, we, I, I call it the diaper genie. Anyone that's had a baby and knows how yes. to put the poop in a diaper genie and you put the cap on it. Um, you don't want to open that cap. <laughs> Once you get that cap back on there, you want that cap on there and you want to open it as little as possible. Um, negative emotions are like that, where a lot of us just go. Oh, that was a terrible thing. I don't want to think about it. Let me go get a drink. Let me go find, you know, some way to repress that and separate myself from that. And what they don't realize is the harm they're doing psychically. And that by repressing those emotions and stuffing them, you're building up baggage. You know, you're you're building up almost like potential energy that's all going to get released at the end of our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, those things... When you have repressed trauma and somebody lifts the lid on the diaper genie by confronting you or pointing out that you're less than perfect, um, narcissists freak out. You know, that's like, (laughs) there there was a YouTube video I watched the other day that uh, the 10 most common lies told by narcissists, and I put in a comment that's just been going off the charts, is I think the number one lie is I never said that. Because Mm -hmm. when you open the lid on the diaper genie, that's going to be the first response is just absolute pure denial. It's a general approach to life, I think, as far as are you able to be open? Are you able to be imperfect and admit your faults? We all are less than perfect. So I think of it in terms of energy as far as. Expansive energy versus compressing energy. You know, maybe, maybe this is a good lead into the, the, the <laughs> prism and the flower that I mentioned to you on the phone the other day. So, when I was in my 20s, uh, for listeners, I'm, uh, I'll be 70 in a few weeks, so I'm retired now. In my early days, in my 20s, in a Chicago winter, spring was coming around, and I pulled the cover off my motorcycle, and underneath this nylon cover, was a prism and a flower. And what just blew my mind away was the flower was perfect. It was like freeze-dried sitting there on the gas tank. I couldn't believe it survived a Midwest winter. The instant my eyes saw this, I had this... I I wish I had the words for it, but I had what I call the gong. Um, During my NDEs, particularly the first Volkswagen rollover, and then the motorcycle accident, which was on the previous show. You know, I described it on the show before. So, in my first NDE, when the Volkswagen rolled over and I went to reach for my seatbelt and I heard the click of the seatbelt, it was like the universe exploded. It was this giant gong of a sumo wrestler hitting, you know, a Thor sized hammer into, you know, a giant steel gong. Um when I saw that Prism in the Flower, I had that same experience. My entire body just resonated was, oh my God, there's a message here. I know there's a message here. And I didn't know what it was. And I really think I've never really figured this out. Maybe listeners will have some input and ideas and can contribute in comments. But it was that my first impression, what I knew initially on my eyes on this koan, which was you know just a puzzle given to me by the universe, was when you contrast the two, the prism represents the contraction of energy. Think of a diamond, you know, under millions of pounds of pressure or in millions of years or whatever it takes to make a diamond. Um, that compression of energy to create a crystal versus the blooming of a life force of a seed turning into a flower, right? They're completely opposite as far as direction of energy and how energy is being dispersed or compressed. And I think of narcissism in that way. And this is just, you know, my personal view of having grown up around it, rather than book learning, is narcissism is all about collecting and hoarding. And you know, I I think As I approached retirement, I think we all have to confront this as we spend our lives building, creating, acquiring, collecting. And then when we get into retirement, we've got all this stuff, and we realize at some point, I have to start downsizing. I don't, you know, the kids are moving on. I have all this stuff. And you start getting in the mode of how do I reduce the clutter? How do I simplify? That process is kind of the opposite of narcissism, uh, that letting go and releasing versus hoarding. Mm. I hope this is making sense, but it's, it's energetically a different approach to life of do I draw things to me for my personal benefit or do I be selfless and help the world or is the right answer somewhere in the middle in finding balance and i tend to think it's somewhere in the middle
0: would it be a maturity finally coming to the truth that we should really be uh, more reaching out more empathetic more as you say curious because curiosity is probably the first step in empathy and compassion to curious enough to communicate and then to make that contact for instance and i know you've thought a lot about your father because of he was like my father, who was very cold. When I was a little boy, it was like approaching a fortress to approach my father. Mm -hmm. But later on, as he got older, and he lived to be 90, he started talking about loving his children and loving us and was generous with us. And I think, as you're saying, it's a time for opening up and giving. But maybe it's a recognition that this body is going to be giving up its soul and everything here is not going to mean much at all i understand completely what you're saying
1: <laughs> yep yeah there comes a point where we have to face that we have to leave this all behind and what really mattered what really endures is love not all our possessions yeah. and it's a life choice it's how you want to live your life it's in many ways I don't know how to say this there's a lot of debates on nature versus nurture and there's a lot of um, consensus that narcissism has some genetic components you know that genealogically you know we we inherit a lot of that baggage not just uh, biologically but the culture that we're born in mm. you know if you're born in a narcissist family that's normal right so the real question is how do you grow beyond that? And a lot of that is the concept in psychology that they call individuation, which narcissistic parents do not allow. In other words, they, they, they call it enmeshment of your, your children are just extensions of you. They're just assets. They're not human beings and people. Um, mm-hmm. And so in enmeshed environments, individuation becoming an autonomous spirit um, becomes very, very difficult. And that's how we come into the world. And that's how we leave the world as individual spirits. You know, we, we're not on the other side and meshed and owned by other people, right? Uh, that's just, you know, manipulation and control on this side. An example of individuation is my older brother, who was a very cruel and abusive narc, a truly rotten person my dad had pretty much given up on him. And so, son number two, I don't know, what age do we start to individuate as children? You know, I mean, I'm guessing, you know, five, six years old, you know, somewhere somewhere in early childhood. So, I started asking questions for the first time and questioning some of my parents' rules. And my dad was going to have nothing of that. So he immediately just declared, okay, I lost son number one. I'm not going to lose son number two. We're going to family therapy. It lasted five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) The therapist, uh, you know, uncomfortable silence. We're all sitting there terrified of my dad. (laughs) And the therapist says, you know, is there anything that you want to talk about that you have issues or concerns about? And I timidly raised my hand and I said... Well, yeah, my dad likes to make dinner for us all on Sunday mornings, which is wonderful. You know, that's you know, nice way to bring the family together. The problem is he does it military style. He comes into the room, blows Reveille, turns on the lights, shouts at us and says breakfast is ready and leaves. And within about five minutes, if we are not up and dressed, he literally comes in the bedroom and he flips over the mattresses on us. and. Mm. You know, it makes me kind of grumpy to wake up in the morning with the box springs in my face. And the therapist (laughs) turns to my dad and very calmly says, sir, could you achieve the same results without using physical violence? And my dad just instantly turned red. (laughs) He ordered all of us to leave the room and behind the closed door, he was screaming at the top of his lungs at the therapist, I'm paying good money to you to fix their heads. How dare you talk to me that way? And that was the end of family therapy, right? Okay. But this is, this is my point as far as the challenge of becoming an autonom- autonomous, self-directed human being is kind of why we're here, right? Not mm-hmm. to be owned, not to be property, that individuation is like vitally important for leading a healthy life. And it's something that's very difficult to do when you're surrounded by people that want to control other people. Right. So if some listeners
0: out there are of a mind to flip over the mattress on their children when they don't get out of bed right away, it, with my father, it was uh, if my room was messy, throw everything in the closet. He'd come in and throw everything all of the clothes anything that was not in place into the closet and shut the door how would they go about not uh reacting the way your your dad did to the psychologist but how would they go about fixing themselves if they see that trait in themselves how does a narcissist undo narcissism
1: generally most experts say they never do that they reach a certain point where if you're perfect, you never go in for therapy because you don't need help. It's everyone else's problem. You know they they can't accept personal responsibility, which makes it extremely difficult for giving them help. Now there are, if you look on YouTube, you will find self-aware narcissists that have YouTube channels that are really fascinating to listen to. Um, they're pretty rare, and it basically comes down to a narcissist that has enough awareness to realize that they are becoming the problem most of them never get to the point because the ego is very good at blame shifting mm. and when confronted will say you know you hear it all the time in prisons well you made me shoot you <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> they they are not able to control their emotional responses because they're completely externalized as far as giving control of their emotions to the environment around them. Mm. That's why they need to manipulate and control people is to self-regulate their emotions. Maybe a good way to explain this is when I was a child growing up, I was severely abused constantly. I couldn't I couldn't survive in my house. And it was horrible, it was terrible, but there was, you know, thank God, there was an empty lot two doors down. And I would, when I was in times of distress, I would go over to the empty lot, plop on the ground, and cry, and just sob for hours, and be alone. And it's hard to describe, but there was a kind of divinity in that. You know, I would be suffering. I'd be sobbing and crying. But at the same time, I could feel what I could only describe as the grace of God. There was like a light. You know, maybe it was future me reparenting my child. I don't know how to describe it, but there was a light surrounding me in those times. And looking back on it as an adult, that's where I learned self regulation is your emotional state is under your control, not theirs. Mm-hmm. Most people don't understand that. Growing up around that kind of abuse is in many ways a blessing. Most empaths you talk to, have some very similar backgrounds. It's the forge that creates us. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we grow up going, I don't wanna be like that. I'm gonna focus on compassion and being nice and integrity and honesty. It makes us lighter. What comes to mind is, in one of my spiritual experiences, an SDE I had, it was in meditation, in a seminar, I was going through a process with hundreds of people there were screaming and crying and trauma going on all around me and in this meditation my spirit guide popped in and I've learned to recognize him and I was told you've almost got this but if you want to go the next level you have to focus on forgiveness you have to let go of all that baggage and forgive and it was very clear it had to be a hundred percent not ninety nine with infinite nines, but a hundred percent and when i agreed to that i was lifted off into an amazing spiritual experience that letting go i think is the real heart of this whole discussion versus hoarding and collecting and grasping and not letting go which is all ego Mm -hmm. spirit wants to be free The experience that I had at the time was in high school, I uh, sprained my leg really bad. So I spent a lot of time doing swimming instead. And one of the things that we had to do for the uh, water safety instructor test was you had to tread water for like a half hour with two rubber bricks in your hands. And forgiveness is like those rubber bricks. The spirit can't ascend when you're grasping the the heaviness of negativity. And all you have to do is just drop them. It's that easy. But if you've lived your whole life and desire to continue to living that way of hoarding, collecting, controlling, manipulating others, and really focused on material possessions in a realm where everything eventually fades to dust, it's not a way to live. The universe is not set up to succeed going downward like that. It's designed to lift us up. Mm -hmm.
0: This is a little off topic, but one of the things that has encouraged me in this trying to understand NDEs and the nature of NDEs is that so many people who come back from a good NDE are not coming back with the feeling that they are God's gift to humanity that it hasn't blown up their ego. In fact, it's deflated it in a lot of ways because they've been exposed to generous quantities of love, perhaps from their family members, deceased family members they met, or from angels or from Jesus or from God. So the reaction that you would think that revivalist preachers go around, you know, making themselves the center of attention, they tend not to do that at all. In fact, they tend to be quiet about it you know, to not talk about it for years sometimes. So it's like a validation of the truth of what they've experienced. So as I say, that's off the subject a little bit, but NDEs, if they weren't real, I would think would produce a whole lot of more narcissism than they apparently do.
1: Well, my experience in my two major NDEs was whoever this guide was that visited me, you know, I mean, I have no idea who it was, if it was, some kind of archangel or angel or, you know, whoever, you know, there, there was a presence with me, but what was most memorable was how unworthy I felt. I mean, it was like standing in the face of a hurricane of love. Mm. I, I was just like being incinerated and it was the sense of the gap of how low we are compared to the infinite how insignificant and small we are. And no matter how much we think we've attained, when you think of the vastness of the universe, that's how much we have to learn. There's so much out there. So my, my NDEs were just a crushing experience of how small we are and how loved we are.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I think that's the route most NDEs take. It's a blessing and a gift. a message to the rest of the world that it's out there well i guess we're not going to solve uh, (laughs) the problems of narcissism i have to go back and note that when you said one of the major aspects of severe narcissism is a narcissist saying oh i never said that when we hear this from politicians who aspire to power all the time even when the lie that they're spouting it has been disproven a thousand times because it's been recorded a thousand times that they did say that in fact, and they did do that in fact. but their ego is overcomes their rationality. I mean, they wouldn't say that if they were being rational at the moment because they know it's been recorded. but their ego insists that they say I never said that.
1: It's kind of the nature of propaganda is to destabilize the listeners' reality by conflicting facts. Even though, you know, you know, the sky is blue. If you're told the sky is, you know, pink or orange or well, what would be a shade that it never is? If you saw that every time you turned on the news, people were talking about, you know, the, the green sky or whatever. After a while, you start to doubt yourself. And that's part of the strategy is it makes people much more malleable and much more easy to control when you can destabilize the reality.
0: Yeah. So, and to that extent, social media has really played into the hands of narcissists, hasn't
1: it? Oh, absolutely. Big time. Yeah.
0: Lies galore. Here's a question for you Do you think that psychedelics like psilocybin might help break through to a narcissist?
1: That is a really interesting question. There could always be exceptions, but as a general thought, first impression, never having thought about this, probably yes. Because what many hallucinogens and those categories of drugs will do is basically repress the ego. When people are tripping, they really lose all sense of self. It Mm -hmm. puts them into a different state to where the body is kind of left behind in many ways similar to a near-death experience. And without that ego and without that baggage, you're kind of like forced to detach and surrender to something that you've never experienced before and can't control, which in some ways is kind of like what we're talking about with the dying process, right? Mm -hmm. Is it's all about releasing and letting go and hallucinogens do that. They, They basically shut off that portion of the brain to where you're in a state where you still exist but your thoughts are left behind if that makes sense yes um, I like that. and so it's a very therapeutic teaching tool of how to get out of your stuff but people use it for partying and you know drugs and repression <laughs> or, you know if you use it to stuff things you're you're going in the wrong direction but it used as a tool for exploration and looking at how can i release all that negativity It can be a very effective tool in the right environment. Well,
0: I guess we should wind this up. And for those listeners who say, well, there wasn't enough about NDEs in this show, let me say we're just trying to prevent the possibility of future Mussolini's (laughs) emerging. If we're put on alert, maybe we can guide our uh, egos in a better direction.
1: And how to live in a more healthy way. Just being open to the fact that we're less than perfect human beings. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Ken. This has been great. <laughs> yep, I'm not an expert, but but I do have experience. I, I was born in a narcissistic family and I'm um, a near-death experiencer. So not an expert, not a psychiatrist, but, you know, life experience is often uh, the most valuable. So glad to share.
0: I think It's it is. It's, it is much more valuable to have lived through it rather than uh, studied it in school. My thanks to Ken Root for sharing some of his personal experiences with us, and thanks to you for listening. Be sure to check out our two-part NDE interview shows with Ken in our YouTube library, March 30th, 2020, and April sixth, 2020. If you'd like to hear this show again, or any of our more than 500 archived ad-free NDE interviews, Go to TalkZone's NDE Radio site and hit the past Shows button, or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE Radio library. And be sure to check out our NDE Radio Facebook page. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. And listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at TalkZone, for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying... Once again, thanks for
1: listening.